0: Welcome to Trinity on Tap Theology, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Victoria Lorimar. Episode 12, the glory that awaits. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Last time we looked at the resurrection, the event that has transformed history. Before that, we followed the way in which the Son of God the second person of the Trinity, entered into history as the person Jesus Christ, sharing in our condition in humility. Now we come to the ascension, where Jesus regains his rightful position. In following the path Jesus forges from death to life, glory awaits us also. Romans 8 describes how we suffer with Christ in order to be glorified with him. Paul goes on to use the metaphor of a woman groaning in labour pains, yet anticipating the joy of a baby, to describe the whole creation at this point, longing for the glory that Paul describes as adoption and the redemption of our bodies. We'll look more at this bodily aspect when we get to the penultimate line of the creed, but let's think more about glorification for now. Because glory can mean a lot of different things today particularly in the context of what the future might look like. In the episode on death, I spoke briefly about transhumanism and the goal of creating better humans through technology. On the surface, some of the transhumanist language about the future resembles religious hope, and glory is one of those terms. There is an anticipation of an apocalyptic event. Many transhumanists anticipate what they call the singularity. A time where human consciousness will merge with artificial intelligence into some godlike existence of infinite knowledge. In the singularity, humans will escape the limitations of a corruptible body, including the restriction of bodily existence to a single location at one time and a finite lifespan. Of course, we're talking about extremes here, and much of these hopes seem far fetched more suited to science fiction than reality. But even tamer expectations of the human future from a secular perspective look for transcendence, hope that humans will be smarter, stronger, live longer, etc. But what is the glorification anticipated in the Creed? Well, the most simple way I can think of to express it is to become like God. But not in the way that transhumanists picture it, We look not to the possibilities of technological enhancement, but rather to the incarnation as our guide for what it looks like to become more like God. Irenaeus, who was a bishop in France in the second century and is one of the celebrated church fathers, is famous for saying that in Jesus, God becomes like us so that we might be made like God. Incidentally, Remember that incarnation anyway, hypothetical question I asked back in episode 5? Notice that Irenaeus doesn't say God becomes like us so that we might be saved from our sin. No, he says God becomes like us so that we might be made like God. This doesn't mean that sin isn't a part of the equation, but the purpose of becoming like God seems much broader than just overcoming our sin, and more on this in a later episode. This picture of becoming like God is called deification, or sometimes theosis. It's a transformative process that culminates in union with God. And some traditions emphasise deification more than others. It's particularly strong in Eastern Orthodoxy, for example. And this isn't just a restoration of a pre-fallen state of perfection, because of the incarnation and the way in which human and divine natures were combined in the person Jesus Christ, it is now possible for us to be even closer to God than Adam and Eve could have been. Jesus brings into existence the full union between God and humanity, creator and created. Again, let's hark back to Episode 5, when I introduced the question of whether the Incarnation would have happened even without a fall. If you're using the workbook, you'll remember two diagrams, sketching out different understandings of the purpose and trajectory of creation. Well, glory is in the upward trajectory, the image of a creation growing, fulfilling the purpose it was created for. And much like some other theological concepts, and here I'm thinking of justification and sanctification, glorification is something that is at once an objective reality accomplished by Christ, and a process that we continually pursue. As we struggle to imitate Christ and to live lives that are kingdom-shaped, we become more like God. You can think of deification as like a piece of metal that is put into fire— In its essence, the metal remains metal, but it takes on the properties of the fire, such as heat and light. The Greek fathers used this same analogy to describe the way that we remain human, even as we take on divine properties, as we're united to God in Christ. Well, the idea of becoming like God might seem a bit out there, but what do you make of the Apostle Peter's words? His divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Thus he has given us through these things his precious and very great promises so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust and may become participants of the divine nature. In God's power and particularly through the work of the Spirit, which we'll look at in a couple of episodes, we are able to become participants in the divine nature. This is just another way of saying that we actually become united with God. If that sounds pretty mystical, you're right. In fact, Christian mystics have long written about this union. St. Teresa of Avila, for example, who was one of the founders of the Carmelite order in the 16th century, wrote a book called The Interior Castle, which depicts the journey through the soul into union with God. St. Teresa's prayers are still used in contemplative traditions today. What does glorification mean in a Christian context? There's quite a lot of glory language in scripture, isn't there? Paul loves to liken the Christian life to a race. For example, in 2 Timothy, he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. From now on there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness. Romans 8 describes us as more than conquerors. The author of Hebrews encourages us to run the race set before us. Races are competitive, and we're used to thinking in terms of winners and losers, holding the former in high esteem. We see from the life of Jesus, though, that the race we are in is a little different to our usual understanding of competition. And winning. The way to glory is through service, through putting others ahead of the self. And this is a constant theme in Scripture that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. The Sermon on the Mount is basically an extended explanation of how Jesus reverses the usual order of things. The meek will inherit the earth, there's no place for retaliation. We should love not only our friends and neighbours, but also our enemies. Following Christ involves a death to self. I do want to say a quick word about how we talk about humility and submission, though. While humility is a virtue, some have more work to do in this area than others. The exhortation to submit, to humble yourself, to put others first, can be dangerous when it's used against people already in positions of vulnerability. Remember Mary's words on hearing that she would conceive and give birth to Jesus? Speaking about God, she says, He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. Dying to self is not self-abasement or belittlement or victimhood. It's not self-flagellation either. We should be especially wary of submission language around power imbalances it can be misused to perpetuate abuse and to control victims. And this is not the kind of humility and service that Jesus models. Jesus was ever on the side of the weak, and in following him, we are called to do the same. Time and time again, the scriptures reveal that authority has a very different flavour when it's wielded by God and not by fallen humans. So as we declare Jesus' ascension through the creed, We remember also the promise for us. When the chief shepherd appears, you will win the crown of glory that never fades away, writes Peter. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. What is he doing now? Well, one answer comes from Romans chapter 8, verse 34. He's interceding on our behalf. And we'll consider what that means next episode when we look at judgment. Throughout this series, we've seen how the gospel challenges, even transforms, our earthly experiences. Earthly power is corruptible. God's power is unfailingly trustworthy and caring. Our conception of family is enlarged as we become a part of the church. Humility becomes a virtue rather than a liability. And glory is won by dying to self through service. Remember that icon Ben referred to a couple of episodes ago, depicting the descent of Jesus to the dead? Jesus reaches down a hand to Adam and Eve, pulling them up, pulling them out of the place of the death into new life and glory. Glory is not something we achieve on our own. It is conferred on us by the work of Christ. In episode 7, I read part of the Christ hymn from Philippians 2, speaking about Jesus' humble self-emptying. But the passage doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This isn't some earthly drive to dominate the bending of every knee by force. It's a promise that the glory of God, which we have the hope of sharing in because of Christ, will cover the whole creation. And in coming episodes, we'll think a bit more about what that might involve. I spoke a bit about transhumanism and technological visions of future glory earlier in this episode and how some of their language resembles religious ideas. They speak of transcendence, about becoming like angels or like God. Well I think one of the reasons why so many find transhumanism compelling is because of the appeal that it makes to the human imagination. Transhumanists tell a story about what the human future might look like, and one that gives us control in making it happen. I want to suggest that the visions of transcendence and glorification proclaimed so confidently in transhumanist literature are ripe for reclamation by Christian theologians, philosophers, writers and artists. We might respond with a fuller vision of the human future, a greater hope to set alongside the imaginings of transhumanists and techno-utopians. Whereas technology itself tends to occupy many of the classic roles of God in some of these alternative futures, as Christians we might challenge this, A Christian account of hope acknowledges that God is the agent of glory. Even though we might use technologies as part of our kingdom-building responsibility, we bear neither the burden of correctly envisioning or accomplishing redemption for ourselves, nor the risk and dread of complete failure. Technology occupies its proper place within the work of a gracious God, who allows creation to participate in bringing the creation toward glorious fulfilment. So take a little time to think about what glorification means. How is your life shaped by the knowledge that Jesus sits in glory at the right hand of the Father? This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.